Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. We've made it to Friday before done very well. Uh, we've got a cracking episode coming up for you today at the creator of Borgen talking about the Danish political drama coming back. We've got James Forsyth and Melanie Reid picking over the news. But first, as we always like to do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. So 2022 began with us all looking for certainty. We learned there just wasn't much of it. Keir Starmer wasn't certain what his new slogan is. The values I've outlined um, today of security, of prosperity, um, and, um, uh, and and uh, uh, and and um, respect—they're the three values. After Keir Starmer had to isolate for the sixth time, Angela Rayner wasn't certain that Boris Johnson was particularly comfortable with her standing in. Prime Minister, how's it going? Are you okay? Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle wasn't certain who the leader of the Lib Dems is. Ed Ball of Ed David. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg made clear at Cabinet he now isn't certain he supports the tax rise he voted for four months ago, but he is certain that refugees should stay in France. I wonder how often, Mr Speaker, France has been called safe in this particular chamber over the centuries, but I think we can accept that it is safe for most uh, refugees, except for those who don't like garlic, who may need to uh, escape. <laughs> what a joker. And Boris Johnson wasn't certain of anything at all. In a four-minute non-answer to a press conference question, 46 seconds were taken up with all of these uncertainties. The, as a... outer. To to uh, 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 that uh, you, uh, for instance, uh, do not the 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 you the numbers of uh, of uh, doctors ten thousand uh, more nurses uh, you'll uh, turn to that that earlier. Uh, the NHS, uh, David, as I said, that is where we are anyway. Christmas. stuff, it is all very clear now. Right, coming up, the big thing today is an interview with Adam Price, the creator of Borgen. Regular listeners of podcasts will know I'm a massive fan. We ran the World Cup of political TV shows and it proved very popular. Uh, so that's coming up in just a sec. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and they've got a new name. Formel. Does it sound like cheese? Anyway, this is Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Let's talk about uh, the flat and Boris Johnson's text. I mean, it's always fascinating when you get an insight. I mean, not, not that any of us would ever want our text messages published uh, publicly. But um, Boris Johnson describing his flat as a bit of a tip in Danishry, which is why he needed to get... Lulu Little, the owner of uh, England's last wicker workshop, rattan work, weaving workshop, on the case to clear it all up. Uh, what does this tell us both about the way that Boris Johnson operates and 
Um, is this the end of the vow, do you think? Or does it open up a whole new load of bad headlines for the PM? I, I think, as um, as Steve Swinford and Henry Zeffman were pointing out yesterday, I don't mean this is the end of the row because it's going to lead to lots of questions about what Great Exhibition Two was and what happened uh, and you know what and, and and all of that. So I don't I don't think it is, I don't think it is, it is the end of it. I also think that there is a kind of that, that it, this is. If you've, you know, the, the Boris Johnson's excuse is that, you know, he had to get a new, not just a new phone number, but a new, a new, a new handset, um, because of the, his number becoming public. But I think one of the things that is so interesting about that is he resisted changing his phone number or handing his phone over for ages because he, he like, this is the way he likes to do business, firing off, you know, WhatsApps and text messages all over the place. And I, I think that, that this is, you know, and this is part of what is causing him problems right now, which is, you know, there isn't proper record keeping of that. Uh, and it means that there's no one there to say, Prime Minister, are you sure that's um, wise? And, and I think that that is what has come back to, 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 to bite him here. I mean, he would have, he would have been much better to have had this, have, have this whole process handled, you know, handled not by him. You know, if this should have been, this should all have been, you know, totally been done by, by people who were not him himself because that would have avoided all of these questions about you know what what did lord brown know you know what what you know what what was going on here uh was this appropriate or not and i suppose that's the thing isn't it melanie is that in most other organizations i mean for instance if if the carpets in the times newsroom were a bit tatty i'm not sure it would fall to the editor of the times to you know, get the, the book the carpet man to come in and fix it and sort out the invoices and, and all of that. Do, do you know what I mean? He's supposed to be running the country. Yeah, it, it, and there should be a process around all the, especially when it starts being public money, donors' money, and all of that. If he was just paying for it himself, then fine. Maybe he could be going through the wallpaper samples. But it just seems a very strange way to run a run a anything. It, well, it smacks of entitlement a bit, doesn't it? And I think that's why people are so angry. I mean, you know, the, the Times inbox beneath beneath the story, 1.9 thousand uh, commenters. I mean, I, I think people care about this because it is about entitlement. You know, that, that line about get in touch with you for approvals. I mean, that that's that's like someone with a trust fund, you know. And it, it, What a lovely euphemism. Next time when I go to my bank manager, I'm going to say, uh, just coming on to you for approvals. <laughs> you know, life, life isn't like that for, 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 uh, in the real world. Um, though, can I just say, I do, I mean, I, I rarely feel sorry for Boris Johnson, but in this instance, I, I do, you know, can you imagine the poor guy going home every night uh, with all he's got, all the, the people on his back going home and what does he get faced with? But the wallpaper. It must. <laughs> he, he's just got no he's, no escape from it, has he? I mean, Lulu Little is all around him. But also, I mean, James, there is a genuine serious point about Boris Johnson. This was going on in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, um, uh, when the country was, you know, when he was, we were told, you know, gripped by the data dashboards and the latest figures and the economy and the deaths and whatever else. And yet it turns out that he was using his time to try and get a mate to pay for his new sofas. It just, I mean, just in terms of priorities, like if everyone knows if you're having a really busy time at work, you don't start redecorating the back bedroom. 
Yeah, look, I, I think I think this is I think this is all comes back to this point, which is you know, process, right? It, it is clearly not a sense of it is not for for both propriety reasons, but also for the reason you pointed out, it's clearly not a sensible use of the prime minister's time. You know, even even if we weren't gripped by COVID, even in normal times, this would not be a sensible use of his time. And I think we've, I think there is a problem here, which is we 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 kind of pride ourselves on. As a country, you know, the, the the prime minister kind of lives above the shop, and you know, the the, the and with and with and it and it's not it's not a presidential style system with you know a chef up there or anything like that. I think I wonder if it might be more, more sensible to kind of take this out of the control of politicians, so remove any potential for conflicts of interest, and have this handled by you know by by somebody else. So that there is a there is a system around them which a keeps them away from the kind of trouble that Boris Johnson has got himself into, but also frees them up to concentrate on uh, what whatever you think of the prime minister of the day is clearly quite an important job yeah the problem is they the problem is they probably they probably choose john lewis wallpaper you know it's 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 most, not, it's, somebody is screaming at the radio right now, Benny. There's nothing wrong with John. If only, if only I could afford John Lewis wallpaper, and that is also yeah. a, a fundamental problem, isn't it? I, yeah, but I was talking from the from the prime minister's and Carrie's point of view. I didn't mean. Yeah, I mean, I quite like. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, but then I suppose the question is that if you're if you're uh, paying for it yourself, fine. If you've got the money, fine. But when you want to live that lifestyle, you haven't got the money yourself, and then the ta- you've used up all of the taxpayer allowance of your flat, and then you go round to your mate to try and do it. And the, there was a, a few weeks ago, there was a brilliant graphic at the Times so where they tried to explain the, the the way the money had gone round in circles, um, and then it sort of all went round in a circle, then it all came back round again because it was, um, yeah, it was just so complicated. Um, James, let's broaden it out a bit more. Let's stop talking about the prime minister's personal finances because you've written your column today about the slightly more important matter of the finances of everyone else in the country. And this cost of living crisis is becoming a massive, massive problem, isn't it? Yeah, it is clearly going to be the big story of the year. And I think we are, we, we've got in new inflation has been low for so long that we've kind of forgotten what happens when it goes high. And it's kind of worth remembering that, you know, Margaret Thatcher in the 80s was always of the view that, that, that inflation was much more of a threat to her governments than high unemployment, because while high unemployment is obviously very painful for, for the individuals and communities involved, but in high inflation makes everybody feel worse off. And that is that is a problem, um, and which, and I think we're going to feel that this year is going to be dominated by this question of, you know, what are you doing to help? And the government's problem is, but obviously with taxes going up in April, people are going to feel that the government isn't isn't helping them, and and also this energy price cap, you know. You, you can't you can't fix prices. So yes, the government has managed to protect consumers in the very short term, but when the regulator decides in February, it's going to put that price tag price gap up by a huge amount. You know, so in Whitehall they are braced for that going up by eighty percent. That's just going to be a massive increase in people's bills, and it's going to be very very painful for people. And I think people are going to want the government to do something to help. And the question is what. Yes, and uh, particularly because this is happening at precisely the time that national insurance is going up. So far from yeah. helping, um, it's 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 adding adding to the problem. How's this playing out in um, in Scotland, Melanie? It's always good to get a sort of take away from Westminster, away from England, because you know the, the prices are going up right across the country. 
I think I think again, it's a case where the Scots are very, very aware of, uh, you know, the, the reality of life. And if you know, if you're paying, if you're paying extra food for if food and fuel and and national insurance are going up, then all the all all the luxuries in life, which I mean, what are the luxuries in life after you uh, you, you pay the essentials, and then what is left? A bit a bit of retail. A bit of tourism, you know, booking a holiday, uh, a new sofa, and all those things are going to go. So the the, the 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 Scots, I think, are less likely to live on credit. They're less likely to to buy on tick, and that's why. I mean, James's suggestion, his column about scrapping tariffs on imported goods, um, I think, I think is it's 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 a it's an interesting suggestion, but I think it's limited because. Um, people aren't, aren't going to go, aren't going to be buying stuff other than the essentials. And that, that goes very much for north of the border where there are a lot of people who are on lower incomes. That's going to be such a problem, isn't it, Jen? But I mean, one of the sectors has been so badly hit in the past two years has been hospitality. And the first thing to go if people are starting to feel the pinch is, you know, except, you know, discretionary spending on eating out and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think this is if you if you look at the sectors that have been worse hit as you, as you say, Matt, it's it's hospitality, it's high street retail, it's travel, uh, and all of those things are going to get hit if people feel that they they are they are having to cut back on their spending because because money's tight. And I think the problem for the government is you know, you can come up with all sorts of ideas about how you fix energy policy, but but none of them happen quickly. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is this is the issue for that, that, that they're dealing with, which is, you know, what are your answers to these problems? And the, the painful truth when it comes to the inflation is that the government has very limited tools about how to handle this. You know, interest rates is now handled by the Bank of England, and you know, the, and Boris Johnson can't really affect the, the global price of energy, and so you you are left in this very difficult position. And then add on top of that the fact that you know Omicron is going to, I think, be inflationary because it's going to, you know, be, the, these shortages that it causes will push prices up further um and you can just see this is going to be a very difficult year some political crises kind of come out of a kind of clear blue sky no one is expecting it this one it is clear as day what we are going to be spending this year talking about in politics and i think that one of the problems with Boris johnson is that is why you're going to have more things like Jacob Rees-Mogg um, and saying, you know, scrap the national insurance rights because because everyone can see what the problem coming down the line is and everyone is going to want to set out their solution to solving it. Melanie Reader, James Forsyth there. And of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie in the Saturday Times magazine, where you can also see my column in the paper on a Saturday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesweb.box. Up next, Borgen is back. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Exactly 10 years ago, Britain was gripped by the politics of coalition, of deals done between unlikely political bedfellows, of high drama and low skullduggery, despite the main protagonist not speaking the same language as everyone else. No, not the Rose Garden love affair between David Cameron and Nick Clegg, but the Danish political drama Borgen, which began being broadcast on BBC4 in early 2012. Where Scandi Noir was all about the dark murders and fancy knitwear, Borgen was all about the nitty-gritty of budget negotiations. Even so, it became a cult hit, with Politico swooning over Begit Nyborg and her efforts to become and then survive as Stats Minister. And now a fourth series is coming this year after it was snapped up by Netflix. Here to explain its success and Danish politics more generally is the show's creator, Adam Price. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I should explain that I was a huge fan of Borgen when it emerged, but I really remember when it first landed on British TV, yes. uh, sitting down with my wife. It was a Saturday night, and she was like, what are we going to watch? Is it going to be Strictly? Is it going to be The X Factor or whatever? And I said, apparently there's this new thing, um, this new drama series. Oh, okay, yeah, it's on BBC4. Okay, it's political and it's Danish. And amazingly, for in a moment of weakness, she went along with it and we became completely hooked by it. Explain for people who, who haven't seen it, who are mad and haven't yet seen it, what the story of Borgen uh, was all about. First of all, I'll just say I'm, I'm so grateful that you actually gave it a chance and that you became hooked uh, because I know it's not a very sexy pitch. I mean, a Danish show about coalition politics, oh, <laughs> that's possibly the worst pitch ever. But... I do believe that the the show has a universal story about the mechanics of power politics that works anywhere, I would say. And also, of course, a story about, uh, you could say, an idealist, Birgitta Nuborg, when she begins her journey into the the prime minister's office. She is actually a three-dimensional woman who has a real life, a husband, kids, and after a, a few rounds of power politics, she basically loses uh, her real life and becomes a different person. We follow that, you could say, downward spiral where she gradually loses her old wholesome life and becomes a power politician, not completely cynical, but definitely losing track of the person she is. And the premise we, we constantly work with uh, with the show is the question, 
uh, can you remain in power and still remain true to yourself? And that's the challenge she faces in every single episode. I mean, I think probably in tone, for people who've seen other political shows, it's more West Wing than the thick of it. In the, there is, it's sort of aspirational, and that's probably why it has proved popular. You know, whatever problems people had in their own domestic politics, seeing this principled, uh, high-minded, you know, good person trying to do the right thing has appeal yes. in the way that uh, yes. West Wing did. She, she does get disappointed, and she disappoints other people as well. Uh, I think, actually, in the, in the fourth episode, she says to her closest advisor, I, I would have hoped that I would have spent more than 100 days before I would be lying uh, openly to the general public. So, I mean, she, <laughs> she, she does get... Uh, her hands dirty, but I definitely wanted to write an uplifting show. Also, basically because so many shows, uh, not only in Denmark, but also internationally and also feature films, had at the time where I began writing Borgen, typically portrayed the political life as, you know, politicians being bad guys, uh, cynical people, uh, power players, only in it for their own good. And it was up to the conscientious journalist to expose the bad politician and get them sacked, basically. And I, and I thought there must be there must be another politician worth our time uh, to to actually to describe to to go into, and uh, and that that became Birgitta uh, Nuborg, obviously. You mentioned that a drama about Danish coalition politics wasn't the sexiest pitch. <laughs> what drew you to it as a topic, and how hard was it to sell to to Danish broadcasters? It, it was quite hard, I would say, when I when I when I came to them with the with the uns with the with the not very sexy version of the show, basically saying I want to do a a, a show about Danish coalition politics. They say go home and work on on the pitch and come back. But I was driven by a want to tell a political story from my generation, basically, because my generation had been accused of being non-political in this country, uh, because basically we were told by our parents' generation, the 68 generation that had kind of reformed the political landscape in many countries and women's lib and, and basically the, the modern society, that, that we were basically the parasites of their revolution, you know? We were just living off the land that they created. Uh, we were uh, basically just prone to be the good consumers because they did the revolution. We had nothing uh, to be, we, we didn't have any reason to be in politics because they did the whole thing for us. And I was actually quite provoked by this. And I thought that, hey, my generation, I, I mean, I grew up with these very strong images of people fighting for democracy, the rebellion at the Tiananmen Square, the falling of the Berlin Wall, these extremely strong images. And then just looking at our own little pretty democracy in Denmark, where people sometimes don't even bother to vote because we've had democracy for such a long time. So I thought democracy should be at the core of this story. You know, an idealistic, uplifting show more than just the, 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 the negative classical story about the bad politician. And how important was it for you that the prime minister or the, or the, the main protagonist trying to become prime minister was, was a woman? Because real life got there just before you did or no, you got there just before Helen Thorning Schmidt base became Danish prime minister in 2011. Exactly, yeah, we were very lucky. Denmark, for strange reasons, actually, it didn't have a female prime minister before uh, Hedda Thorning uh, Schmidt came, and, and we were, I think, two or three months before her. 
So, so that was just a, a, a good luck for, on our part. But I thought it was hugely important that it was a woman because, I mean, I just thought that for many reasons, it would be more interesting to see a woman sacrifice everything that has to do with her private life, her love life, her relationship with the kids, with the husband, uh, in order to fill the seat of the most difficult job on earth, basically. It would be it would be more interesting to, uh, interesting to see a woman do that because we have seen so many times that men let down their wives, their kids, everything to wage wars, to build businesses, to triumph politically. But we hadn't seen uh, a woman do it in a man's world. And I thought that would be an interesting way into it. So definitely it was all important that it was a woman. I wonder if you, in the process of doing because I've spoken to people who've written political dramas or actors who, who've been in them, and their, their view of politicians has changed in the process of thinking about the decisions they face. And I wonder whether, and some, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, and I wonder if your opinion of politicians change as a result of working through, you know, sometimes it's budget negotiations, you know, or it's trying to solve political crises overseas, prevent a conflict, whatever it might be. Yeah, I, yeah. I just wonder if your view of politicians changed in the process of creating Borgen. Well, I think the game has definitely changed. And I think the, the new season uh, also tries to reflect on that. The game has become a faster game. It's become dirtier. And I think the politicians in the game have to change their, their ways uh, about the game. And, and, and that has changed them as well. I do respect uh, a lot of uh, the politicians I have been able to follow and, uh, and to have uh, a series of meetings with, with party leaders from all, you could say, all parties of the Danish parliament. So I really tried to do a lot of research also for the new season. But I think the game has changed, uh, as I said. And um, do I still have the same respect? Yes, but sometimes uh, also in this country, even though I would say that in Denmark, we do have a lot of trust, not necessarily of the singular politician, but of the system. We really believe in the system. And I think uh, there's a lot of proof of that. Uh, COVID lately has proven yet again that the Danes, they have a great trust of the system, not necessarily the, the, the politician in it, but definitely the system. It has made me respect certain politicians, but it has also made me loathe the game uh, <laughs> because sometimes it is so, it, it doesn't go for results. You know, it, it very often the game is about making it difficult for your opponent more than actually achieving a result, which is so sad because we don't, we don't elect them uh, to make difficulties for each other. We elect them to make results for the country. When we last saw uh, Begit, she'd launched a new centrist party. And this has, you know, got us, centrists in in britain very excited you know that maybe something similar could happen here and in fact we then did uh, in the form of what became change uk we had a centrist party that broke away from the labor party and the conservative party and you know surged in the polls and then crashed and burned almost immediately and had absolutely no impact at all on the 2019 election and yeah. actually what we've seen in politics is it's it's probably diverged more rather than sort of becoming more centrist what's happened in danish politics over the same period. We've seen, you know, in America, it's become more polarised too. I know Danish politics less well. What's happened there? Well, uh, of course, we have a long tradition of a multi-party system in, in Denmark. And, and of course, you don't in the UK. And I think in the US, it, it has become a tragedy. It has become 
the, the First World War of trenches, basically. And I think that is, that is really sad. We don't have that picture in Denmark at all. And we do have uh, actually quite modern examples of political parties uh, erupting out of nowhere and, and actually becoming elected. Um, though we've also had some terrifying crash and burns on that scene as well, which is also always super interesting. So I wouldn't say that the story of Birgitta Newborg and her new party is altogether unrealistic in this country anyway, because it, it actually happened. And we also have fairly new parties in parliament at the moment that seem to be quite successful. And we will see how successful, of course, in the next election. But we have this old tradition of coalitions, coalition uh, governments, and also minority governments that have to, if they want to pass bills, they have to do it across all the lines of the parties, various parties in parliament. And that is the Danish tradition. And it, it seems to work. And also, as I said before, there seems to be a great deal of trust in the system as such, even though we possibly dislike the uh, one politician and another politician, but we actually trust the system. Now, way back in June 2020, just as Times Radio launched, in fact, I interviewed Helen Thorne-Schmidt, the former Danish prime minister, and I asked her if she used to watch Borgen. Uh, well, I did watch it, but then it became, it just became a bit... Um... It's something happening in like uh, they got divorced and their daughter got mentally got mental issues. And then I got very angry with it. And I told the author I was very angry. And he explained to me that it had to be that fiction was fiction. So I do admire that program. <laughs> and I'm I'm very happy that this is the, the Danish Broadcasting Association that made this, this program. Uh, it became world famous. And for me, I guess it was interesting because obviously they interviewed me before they, they made the program. There are certain things in there that that reminded me of my own political career. So it's it's very interesting that people have finally, if Broad has fi- finally understood what it means to have a coalition government, what it means to have minority government stuff that I think we could never have taught the global community, but now they have an impression of what that is like. That was Henning Thorning-Schmidt there. So Adam Price, before Christmas, I spoke to Armando Inucci, who famously created uh, Veep in the US and the thick of it in the UK. And one of the things that he talked about was how they would make up a scene for the thick of it. And then after it had gone out on air, politicians or political people would get in touch and say, how did you find out about that? We thought we'd kept that quiet. And I just wondered whether through your interactions with people like Helen Thorny Schmidt, you discovered that you, even when you thought you were making up entirely fictional things, that actually art imitated life, life imitated art. Well, uh, the, the funny thing is that I actually met with Hedda Thorny Schmidt before she became prime minister. Yeah. So I actually met her when she was chairman of the, the Social Democratic Party in Denmark. And the, the chairman is always a candidate for the, for the prime minister's office, obviously. But I didn't meet with her when she was uh, prime minister. But I've had the pleasure of meeting with several prime ministers, uh, uh, former prime ministers. And of course, you you pick up stories, uh, bits and pieces. You study, you become a political junkie, basically. You study, (laughs) of course, the news every single day. You read political columns uh, and you pick up bits and pieces. I would never take a story one-to-one and just place it in the show because I would feel like I'm not writing documentary. I'm I'm trying to build a, a, a meaningful drama uh, that basically is the story about a female politician, her, her close colleagues, her family, and also a journalist, her colleagues, her family. So we actually have these two 
uh, ways into the political life of Denmark, the journalistic and the political way into it. And the, the personal drama needs to make sense. It needs to have an arc. And, and therefore, I need to build the stories around the character more than basically hammering the character into some odd story that I happen to find in, in a news column. I, I would never do that. But I would pick bits and pieces. And then we would try always to ask politicians, what would be the next thing? What are you working on at the moment? What do you think would be a, a scene of great uh, controversy or, or strife in, in, in parliament in, in the years to come? We would always try to kind of look into a crystal ball together with, with experts in order to be online with, with the latest development on various uh, areas of, of politics. And we really tried to do that with the new show. It has been very difficult because things change at a much faster pace at the moment. Yes, let's talk about that. How did it come about? It's been seven years since, but in fact, longer than that. What was it in 2013? Yeah, it, 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 we almost, yeah, 10 or nine years since. Uh, it aired uh, I, anyway in Denmark. Yeah. So we actually said to each other back then that should we ever have the idea of, of getting the band together again, it should be because we had a very strong idea that we needed to write. We, should just, we shouldn't do it just because we had, we'd made a success. We should do it out of necessity for a story. And I really thought that story came. And of course, I will not reveal too much of it because <laughs> that would be flood reading for the new season. But I think there's also another reason now, which is actually quite uh, interesting. The characters, Birgitta Nuborg and, and uh, Katrine Fönsmark, the journalist, I mean, they have moved into a dip, different chapter of their lives because they have actually become 10, 12 years older. And if you have been so long time in politics as Birgitta Newborg has at this current hour, you have also been changed by that as a person. She's also personally in a different chapter of her life. She is now in her early 50s. And also, what does it mean for a politician when you've been in power, when you've been a powerful person in the top echelons of your party, of the parliament, in so many years. I talked to a politician who said, you know, power is like a slow working poison. It drips into your cup every day, a drop a day. And you think it's coffee, but after a while, it's not. It's just bitter. <laughs> and wow. It, and it, you. Yeah. And I think that is actually a very, uh, it's a beautiful description um, of a disease, the disease of power. And how do you avoid being absorbed in it? How do you avoid becoming a different person where power becomes your primary basis of actually being in the game? You actually, you're in there for the power it gives you and what you can do with that power. Well, if you can put up some trip wires for your personal adversaries uh, in parliament, that's possibly even more important to you than actually making results because you're, you've become this old, angry lion in this game and uh, you don't hunt in the same way as you did when you were a young lion. It's interesting you, you make that point about this, sort of the addiction to power of politicians. The interesting, yes. I think one of the differences it seems between but in Denmark, is that actually almost all of the former prime ministers in the UK leave office and then they leave part. In fact, it's only Theresa May who is still of the, what's it, we've got John Major, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, five former prime ministers. Only Theresa May is still in politics. They all clear off and do their own thing, whether it's to make money or 
save the world, wherever it might be, but it's outside politics. Is there a different culture in Danish politics? Did politicians stay around for longer? I think that there are quite recent examples of the opposite. Uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen became a secretary general of NATO oh, yeah. and then left. Lukas Rasmussen, his, uh, his successor, was prime minister for a relatively short time. Then uh, head of Tony Schmidt came and then he came back and actually became prime minister again. So he stayed in the game and is actually forming a new party. So quite interesting there, he has remained in politics. Hedda Toning-Schmidt left politics, took various offices in, in uh, outside politics and has now written a very successful book. So I would say some stay, some don't. Uh, there's not a rule to it. But definitely the game has changed also for old prime ministers in this country. And uh, it has become dirtier for them as well. <laughs> I suppose that the nature of what, eight political parties in the parliament, uh, the nature of those multi-party coalitions means that, you can, as we learned from watching Borgen, you can feel like you're completely out of it one minute and then something happens and suddenly you're right back in the game again. Just like, when will we be able to see the new series of Borgen? And will COVID be a part of it? Because there were sort of <laughs> so many different schools of thought with people creating drama. You, you know, do we want to be reminded of it? Can you pretend it didn't happen? What's your approach to it? Exactly. Um, well, I actually decided that this show would have a post COVID feel to it. Uh, so uh, we are definitely living in a world where, where COVID has taken place, but it is not a subject that we constantly are talking about and we're not wearing face masks at all times <laughs> because how would you ask uh, act in a face mask, uh, mask? So definitely not. Uh, I thought we would be so sick and tired of it. I'm sure most people are that I would make it a post-COVID thing. Uh, we opened the show in Denmark uh, on the 13th of February, so quite soon. We are currently editing the very last episode of, of this coming upcoming season. Then it will be on in Denmark for eight weeks. We've made a season of eight episodes. And then uh, it will be on Netflix. So I would say sometime mid-April, it will be on in 190 countries. And how exciting is that for you? Instead of me 10 years ago having to root all around in the dark corners of BBC4 to find it, it lands globally on what the biggest streaming network. Yes. And of course, we are very excited about that. It's a different day and age now. I mean, back in the day when we wrote Borgen, when, when I began creating the show, I was told by the, the head of drama back then for, for DR Drama, the Danish broadcasting service, that Adam, this show will not travel. I mean, this is a show about Danish coalition politics. Maybe the Norwegians and the Swedes will buy it out of brotherly love, but that will be it. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, we began to see that, like, all of a sudden, it began to grow in other countries. It became big in the Netherlands and in Belgium and in the UK and in France and in Germany. And that was very exciting because you could see it kind of evolving. Now it will just explode out there in 190 countries and it will be a big boom. And then and then it's there. We, we wouldn't necessarily know how it will go in every single country it's just out there on netflix on the big ocean uh, alongside with huge other series 
And we will just uh, pray and hope that uh, our little uh, Danish Viking ship will be the centre of some attention, at least. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you what happens at the end of the series, but is there a possibility for more if it explodes on Netflix around the world in the way that you'd hope? <laughs> well, uh, I will say so much that we do not kill any of our... <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a very high body count in this show. But of course, you can die as a politician in many ways, and I will not uh, reveal any uh, plot, plot uh, details uh, as to that yet. But I'm sure if there was a, a great public need for it, uh, we would have to go back and see if there wasn't uh, yet another idea in the top drawer. One other thing I wanted to ask you, just uh, Adam Price, yeah. have you ever crossed paths with the Adam Price in British politics? Former Actually, MP no, no. I, and now no, leader of Clyde in Wales. Obviously, when, when you sometimes, I mean, if you Google the name and, and, and sometimes I, I can see that there is a, a politician with my name or I, I have his name. I've never met him, but the family is, uh, is English. We left London 200 years ago. Uh, so there are definitely ties with the UK, but there are, they, they are old and worn. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we, and there he is in the Welsh Assembly now, uh, leading plight. And yeah, you're... <laughs> Maybe there is a connection somewhere with the deeper distant past. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Adam, it's been lovely to speak to you. I'm really excited about it coming back. Um, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for talking to us, Adam Price. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 